Hello and welcome to the World Resources podcast from WRI. I'm Nicholas Walton, based in our Europe office, and today our podcast is about the world's response to the COVID-19 crisis. We're holding a series of Building Back Better public webinars on how the world deals with the health, economic and environmental challenges that we're now facing. The first brought together voices from across WRI. Helen Mountford, Fong Lee, Dan Lashoff, Wanjira Matai and Anjari Mahendra. But first, Manish Bapna, WRI's Executive Vice President. You know, the world is it kind of looks very different today than it did even just a month ago. We're confronted with three pretty profound crises. We have a health crisis, we have an economic crisis that's been induced in no small part by the health crisis, and we have a climate crisis. And the scale and scope of these three crises are absolutely mind-boggling. And, and the exam question for today's seminar is as we respond to the very immediate kind of economic and health crises, can we also tackle the climate and sustainability crisis? Can we build back better? And we've been giving some thought to this over the past few weeks and wanted to share four kind of very high level insights that have emerged from our early thinking on this issue. The first is that climate is highly relevant to many of the fiscal and monetary measures that are being discussed by governments today. If you think about the bailouts that many governments are putting in place, uh, whether it's around uh, aviation or shipping, you know, will, will there be conditions put under those bailouts? You think about infrastructure, will, will infrastructure to stimulate the economy be focused on traditional infrastructure? Or will we look at new infrastructure? China's having a very interesting debate about this and whether they can actually invest in advanced infrastructure that creates jobs, but that's low carbon. Even if you look at monetary policy, you think of quantitative easing, right? Who would have known, but that can have major climate impacts as well. So the first point is that climate is actually quite relevant to many of the fiscal and monetary measures that people are talking about today. The second point is about jobs and livelihoods the economic recovery programs need to primarily focus on jobs and livelihoods, but we believe climate can be a really important co-benefit. Just yesterday, 6.6 million people in the United States filed unemployment claims for the first time. This is 10 times more than during the 2008 crisis, and the situation in the developing world is going to be much, much worse. And so the question here is, as governments focus on generating jobs, can they find investments that both generate jobs and reduce emissions? Think of energy efficiency for homes or commercial buildings, things that can both create a lot of jobs everywhere in every country, can actually create a lot of household savings and can actually reduce emissions. The insight here is that we need to lead with a serious jobs argument and a climate has The third point, behavioral change. Much of the focus has been on how to integrate climate into economic recovery programs. But there's also something more profound happening, which is certain behavioral shifts. On the good side, whether it's teleworking and virtual conferences, on perhaps the less good side, a, a aversion maybe right now to public transportation. Which of these behavioral shifts will be durable, will be sticky? Can we actually see or encourage those shifts in societal and behavioral in behaviors, individual behaviors, that lead to more sustainable lifestyles. And the fourth and final kind of, kind of point is the need for a new social contract. 
we know that vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries are going to be the hardest hit from the virus. The health and economic crisis is only going to exacerbate really bad inequality today. And there's going to be a tendency to take care of those that are closest. But we need to sustain commitment to development aid, to climate finance. We need to help encourage a new social contract that will emerge, that will ensure that we do protect the most vulnerable, that effective collective action will emerge to address common threats. Ironically, at a time when we must uh, practice social distancing, we actually need the world to come together. So these four points, fiscal and monetary measures today have actually very significant climate impacts. Second, that reflating the economy must focus on jobs and livelihoods, but we can do so in a low carbon way. The third, we should be looking not only at economic policies and investments, but also behavioral shifts. And the fourth, that we need a new social contract has been informing our thinking, our work in China, in the United States, in Africa, in cities. You're going to hear about that from all of my colleagues in just a moment. I just want to close with a quick anecdote. Um, some of you may know that today marks the 10th anniversary of when the first iPad was launched. Um, hard to believe, but uh, it's, it's incredible how successful the iPad has been in part because it solved multiple problems at the same time. You could use it for work, you could use it for entertainment, you could carry it anywhere. And in some sense, we need to find those interventions, those solutions today that can speak to multiple problems, that can, that can generate jobs, that can tackle inequality, and that can reduce emissions. That was Manish Bapner, now Helen Mountford, Vice President for Climate and Economics at WRI. Now, what we know is that, of course, this crisis is a very different one from the 2008-2009 crisis. This one is the result of a simultaneous demand side and supply side shock as economies are grinding to a halt. Now, of course, the first wave of government responses absolutely has to focus on the emergency measures to stop the spread of COVID-19 and support those who are affected by it or by the job and income losses that we're seeing uh, around the world. But hot on the heels of this initial response is a desire to reboot the economy. And some of the lessons that we learned from efforts in 2008-2009 crisis are relevant here, in particular on how we can actually build back better. Over $400 billion were spent on green stimulus measures as part of the 2008-09 response. This in total was about 15% of total fiscal stimulus. China and the U.S. accounted for the vast majority, over three quarters of the green spending at that time. South Korea was the one who really embraced the green stimulus the most as a percentage basis. So they had about 80% of its fiscal stimulus directed to green measures. Their aim at the time was to create 960,000 green jobs between 2009 and 2012 as part of this stimulus. Now, while most countries right now are still focused on the immediate emergency measures to tackle COVID-19, South Korea is already starting to look ahead and show early signs of green stimulus action as part of its second wave of measures. They've just announced, for example, that they'll increase a subsidy for solar rooftop um, uh, to 50% of total costs, up from uh, 30% last year. So this is an approach that will increase demand for solar rooftop uh, for both households and commercial use. It will boost jobs and it will slash household electricity bills, benefiting households um, day to day. In addition, it's going to reduce emissions. 
Others, in particular the U European Union, are also planning a green economic recovery. Um, and the president, the European Commission president, von der Leyen, has emphasized that their priorities are digitalization, decarbonization, and resilience. Uh, Dr. Fang Li will tell you a bit more about what China is planning. So we have some initial measures building on what we've seen. What we can see going back to 2008-2009 um, was that interestingly GDP growth in Korea rebounded faster than the OECD as a whole after the financial crisis. Now there's a number of reasons for this, but do recall that they were the ones who really put 80% of their fiscal stimulus into green measures. So in the first quarter of 2009, Korea was one of only a few OECD countries to have positive growth. And by the third quarter, it had a growth rate of 2.8%, one of the highest in the OECD. And if we look at the US and what we learned from 2008, 2009, there was a major recovery package, the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which injected something like $800 billion into stimulus spending, while also being the largest ever clean energy investment in US history. It provided over $90 billion in clean energy investments and tax incentives, leveraged about $150 billion in additional finance, and supported 900,000 job years in clean energy between 2009 and 2015. Now analysis after the crisis found that in some cases, green stimulus outperformed more traditional in infrastructure investments, including in terms of delivering jobs, boosting jobs in the economy. So for example, in the US, what we saw was that uh, for major transport projects was where countries with, where states spent $1 billion on public transport projects, they were managed to create 4.2 million job hours in the US following the crisis, while the same amount of money spent on highways created only 2.4 million job hours. So we got almost double the amount of job hours through clean transport investments compared to highways and roads. So there's benefits there in terms of actually delivering the jobs. We have a lot of evidence of how green stimulus measures, whether through infrastructure investments, fiscal policies, um, through the bailout schemes, how these can actually help to boost growth, deliver the jobs that we need, and protect the most vulnerable households. What we need to do now is to draw on this evidence and look at the current circumstances and see how we can apply it. One of the key aspects that I think that will be very different this time compared to 2008-09 is really that we need to ensure we build back better in a way that enhances our resilience to future risks. Uh, we know, we understand much better the risks from coming out of this COVID-19 crisis, and we need to ensure that we build resilience to future risks, including climate ones. I think one of the things we'll be looking for is the role of investment in our natural or green infrastructure. How can we invest in nature in a way that it actually supports rural incomes and livelihoods, delivers food security, and boosts um, our resilience to future risks? Helen Mountford. Next, Fong Li of WRI China. The coronavirus caused a lot of the deadly impact of the economy in different sectors. Numbers show you about the result. Purchasing Managing Index, that is a gouge to show the future economy activities. It's dropped down from 50 to 35.7. During 2008, the number was 38.8. So we can see that's more severe than 2008. And the other data showed us the 
uh, aggregated the mobility data from the peoples and business and industry and satellite. It shows China's economy recovery index so far till the 27th of March back to over 86. And there are some economic uh, sectors going different way. Untouch or light touch economy, they go the different direction. I give you two examples. The online working and online education increased dramatically. Another highlight is a China's new infrastructure investment plan. It's carrying willingness to driving China economy from the high speed to the high quality, 5G, big data, AI, inter, uh, industry, internet, extra. And also that is a only part of the word stimulation as uh, Helen already introduced. And the countries around the world are launching new stimulus. We should really pay attention on long-term implication of those plans. In 2008, the impact of the investment. After the infrastructure investment, we can see the emission from uh, emission of the carbon dioxide increased. After the global financial crisis, the global CO2 emission from fossil fuel combustion and cement plant growed faster than ever. If we think that is a really good opportunity for us, we believe there are many uh, opportunity in the new infrastructure investment. Here are we identified uh, some areas we want to share with you. During the epidemic, we can really feel the excision of the people needs like food. And also we got some experiences from the adaptation uh, especially the re resilience of the city's infrastructure, and also the waste management, circular economy, transportation, and energy storage, and new energy supply. So with the big data, with the new technology, we can have more opportunity and potential opportunities. In Chinese saying, the opportunities are always going along with the challenges. Here, we really feel many challenges, not only for virus itself, but also for geopolitical and anti-globalization, especially the supply chain, and also people changing agenda, put the economic first. How about biodiversity and climate change? The food, especially the food supply chain, which combine the biodiversity conservation and climate change. So that is a very reflective, healthy supply chain and resilient supply chain. Now, Dan Lashoff on what the United States should do. Just a week ago, the United States enacted its third piece of emergency legislation in response to the medical and economic crisis brought on by COVID-19. Uh, it was a $2 trillion economic rescue package, the largest in our recent history, featuring cash payments, uh, extended unemployment insurance, medical care, uh, to treat the hundreds of thousands of Americans expected to need hospitalization over the next few weeks. And since then, as Manish mentioned, over 6 million people filed for unemployment benefits, uh, bringing the total in the last two weeks to over 10 million. 
the scale of this economic shock is as unprecedented as the health threat that uh, is caused by the virus itself. And as a result, discussion has already turned uh, to what Congress should do next to reboot the U.S. economy once it's safe for people to return to work. In the last few days, both Speaker Pelosi and <clears throat> President Trump have called for Congress to enact a phase four emergency measure consisting of more than $2 trillion of additional spending, including in this case, a major infrastructure investment component. And while Senate Majority Leader McConnell has called for a more cautious wait and see approach, most economists agree that additional economic stimulus will be needed and members of Congress and their staff are already working to put the next bill together. So what could be the central elements of an effort to not only get people back to work as quickly as possible, but also lay the groundwork for the clean energy transition that we must make to avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis? I'll focus on four areas, renewable energy and grid upgrades, transportation electrification, building retrofits, and tree restoration. First, we need to revive the wind and solar industries, which employed 350,000 people in the United States before the pandemic struck and was one of the fastest growing sectors of the U.S. economy. We can do that by extending the existing tax credits and temporarily allowing cash payments in lieu of tax credits, as was done in 2009. We will also need to upgrade the grid that connects renewable energy to our homes and businesses in a flexible and smart way so that we can take full advantage of our abundant renewable resources. Next slide. Second, we can bring idle factories back online to build electric school and transit buses, which will cut down on the diesel pollution damaging the lungs of our kids while lowering operating costs for school districts and transit systems throughout the country. And we can put electricians and construction crews back to work installing the charging infrastructure that we will need to support a growing electric vehicle fleet. Third, we will need to get the over 2 million Americans in the energy efficiency industry back on the job of upgrading our buildings. Greatly expanding the low income home weatherization program is one way to provide assistance to the population hardest hit by the economic crisis while reducing the emissions that contribute to the climate crisis. And by retrofitting our schools and hospitals with more efficient equipment and renewable energy microgrids, we can lower costs and make our critical infrastructure more resilient uh, to the next crisis, uh, where whatever that is brought by, whether fire or flood or the next pandemic. Fourth, we could create 150,000 jobs starting immediately by committing resources to a major tree restoration effort targeting not just forests, but also agricultural land and urban landscapes. A sustained effort could eventually plant 60 billion trees in the United States and remove over 500 million tons per year of CO2 from the atmosphere. A significant contribution to the Global Trillion Trees Initiative, which has strong bipartisan support. As the saying goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. By making a major investment now in programs that simultaneously create jobs and build sustainable infrastructure, the seedlings of a solution to the climate crisis can grow out of our current crisis. And that was Dan Lashoff. Next, Wanjiro Matai, the regional director of WRI Africa. I want to start by commending um, 
African countries and, and African governments for the attention, the balancing act that they're actually going through. It is unprecedented in so many ways, what's going on around the world. But at the same time, for our economies that are extremely vulnerable to be balancing the, the absolute vulnerability of livelihoods and jobs and, and with, with curfews and shutdowns and school closings and closing down airports, where, which, which in many ways threaten the, the value chains and the supply chains of so much makes our countries and our economies tick. So uh, I, want to, I want to first start by saying how grateful we are for, for the balancing act that is, is currently going on and the cushioning and, and really the, the, the big uh, message for all of us has been clear. We have got to cut transmission. We cannot afford uh, a big hit. Our health systems just don't, uh, just are not able to handle it. But that said, I, I want to focus um, first on what I think uh, African economies must do, because I think we have to look, this, this crisis in many ways has just brought, torn us apart in a way and helped us realize that internally we have got to find our own solutions. We've got to innovate. We've got to explore ways to secure uh, food security for our populations. And yes, we will need our friends, but at the moment, like somebody else said, it is probably unprecedented that we are all going through these problems at the same time. So I know that economies around the world will be dealing with this. But for us, the governance and the strength of our governance, the strength of our systems, and certainly the strength of our social capital will be tested in ways that has not happened before. I think for many African uh, governments right now, they're organizing themselves around how to engage international bilateral and, and, and multilateral institutions to, to pull together whatever economic stimulus can be pulled together and acknowledging that our GDPs just don't have what it takes for the kind of almost most, most predictions, the best of them saying will be sub under 1%, but probably even sub zero uh, growth rate. So, um, Working with our international and bilateral uh, partners will be critically important. But I think what's exciting is what it's doing in terms of internally getting private sector and public sector to work together, working together around critical value chains. And I particularly want to focus on the food value chain because food at the moment is one of the most uh, critically threatened um, uh, value chains and supply chains, and one that we cannot afford under any circumstances to have blocked because it could precipitate uh, different um, uh, challenges for us as a country and as countries that would be even more uh, damaging. And so most of our countries at the moment are looking at ways to ensure that we keep the food supply chains flowing, that we ensure that whatever happens, that we keep as flat as possible the price of food and ensure that low-income uh, and, and densely populated areas have access to food. So most important for us are creating some of those local loops and linkages that will ensure that food supply continues to flow and that these critical value chains are protected. And these include, fortunately, value chains that are coming out 
from countries that rely on food that comes from outside, that those uh, avenues remain open. Even as we close um, our ports to, to human traffic, we continue to allow uh, the traffic of food and food uh, products because that is critical for the survival of, of populations. Government must also ensure that farmers who are extremely vulnerable continue to be able to do what they need to do to ensure that the food supply continues to come. So cushioning farmers at this point and ensuring that the inputs that are required, many of which may be relying on, on supply chains outside the country, continue to flow. And then we've got to start thinking about new ways of ensuring that our landscapes are resilient and are continue, continue to serve the populations and protect um, vulnerable populations. I always remember the fact that for years and centuries, our landscapes have cushioned us against so much um, adversity. And this at times like this, that we must begin to understand the imbalance that has been caused by our activity. And I'm proud that even in our Africa strategy, we are focusing on a concept of vital landscapes and what that means in terms of building resilience around food, water, and energy systems. Wanjira Matai, now Anjali Mahendra, Research Director of the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities. Cities and urban areas are at the front lines of the COVID-19 impact. Their healthcare services are overwhelmed. Public transit systems are not functioning. And they're struggling, um, as Wanjira will attest, in many parts of the world to even provide basic access to water and sewerage for hand washing needs. People are, of course, losing their jobs. And in all of this, we're seeing that low-income people are suffering the most. So as we think of these economic stimulus packages and as countries and governments are reassessing their priorities, we really need to use this opportunity for cities to be able to build back better, to be more resilient, more low carbon, and certainly more equitable. So first of all, first observation, what this pandemic is doing is it's exposing the existing fault lines in cities with respect to lacking physical infrastructure and inequalities access to core services. Large proportions of people don't have decent housing to self-isolate, basic water and sanitation. They don't have access to healthcare or transport options. And these challenges, as Manish mentioned, you know, that they cope with every day are now exacerbated by the crisis. Social distancing is simply impossible for about 1 billion people in the world who live in such informal settlements in developing countries primarily. The second uh, observation is that this pandemic is showing us the fragility of employment and jobs that cities depend on, uh, the jobs that underpin urban economies. Uh, we've already heard the millions of people who in the US who've lost their jobs, but you also have informal workers in cities around the world with no employment contracts, no insurance, no income to depend on, and they're facing the tough choice of um, either exposing themselves to the virus or dealing with hunger for themselves and their families. And these jobs in the informal sector, the gig economy, the low wage formal sector jobs, they're crucial in cities. Look at the image I have on the slide, your typical commercial area in a city with street vendors and all the retail that we're seeing so badly hit in this pandemic. Um, and what we're lacking are the fiscal and social safety nets so essential to build that economic resilience uh, in times like these. The third uh, observation is, of course, that this is an immense opportunity to build back better, right, for cities. Uh, why that's so is because we know that economic, social, 
and environmental resilience are all interlinked. Cities as systems. And so nowhere do you see this playing out more clearly than in cities. Uh, the pandemic has, of course, created a big opportunity to build back more inclusively, more resiliently, and more sustainably. So what do cities need to do? I'm going to quickly touch on five things that I hope we can consider as we think about these economic stimulus packages. So first, we must shore up urban economies with strong social and fiscal safety nets that are geared at informal and low-wage workers, essential workers. Um, we need to provide the income support and the health services that they need. Second, we must bring a sharp focus on investing in infrastructure and housing for better health, well-being, and resilience. And what this involves is identifying those high-risk locations, those poor and under-resourced communities in cities like New York and New Orleans here, or those informal settlements that I'm showing a picture of uh, you know, around the world. This is a picture of Mumbai. And uh, we need to identify the locations, but also invest in these vulnerable communities. Third point is the governance that Manjira also made. We need to improve governance to allow for a more seamless national and local coordination, not just in these times of emergency, but as we recover, making sure fiscal transfers are tailored to the needs of specific cities. Next, we need targeted financial support for the most vulnerable urban residents so that basic services, including healthcare, remain accessible and affordable. We need cash transfers for vulnerable groups. We're already seeing that happening in the US, uh, but also in the kinds of settlements you see in this picture. We need uh, uh, support for um, livelihoods in so many of these cities around the world. And last, but most important probably to everything I've said so far, is that the need for data and information. We must generate the required data at the city and neighborhood scale, granular data, to respond to conditions on the ground and monitor them in an ongoing way, in partnership with communities. Uh, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore set up these uh, public health response systems during the SARS uh, outbreak. And that has prepared them well to handle the crisis now. Uh, this is something we've seen uh, coming up slowly in many cities around the world, but we really need to ramp up action there. That was Anjali Mahindra. To end the webinar, our panel answered a number of questions here posed by the Vice President for Communications, Lawrence MacDonald. Dan, um, easier or harder for oil companies to become energy companies when the bottom falls out of the price of their product? Yeah, that's a, a hugely important and, and really tough question. I've seen very strong arguments on both sides of that. Uh, I think uh, on, on the uh, positive side that it makes it easier, uh, the volatility and decrease in oil prices certainly is making uh, reducing drilling activity and uh, particularly in, in more difficult to access resources like the U.S. shale. So the question is, uh, will those resources be redeployed into cleaner energy? Uh, you know, on the other hand, with cheap oil, uh, will that uh, slow down the momentum for investment in alternatives? I think both are true at the same time, and ultimately the answer will depend on what kinds of policies governments put in place moving forward. Um, Helen, question about the impact on the UN climate conference and maybe more broadly on the international process, which WRI has been so closely involved in for many years. Uh, does this totally go off the rails? How does it continue? 
Thanks, Lawrence. I, I think the brief answer is absolutely not. It, it does not go totally off the rails. I think what we're seeing from COVID-19, the kind of risks we're seeing and how they impact on the economy, on society, on people around the world, only highlights even more so the importance of managing better and reducing risks for the future, including the risks of uh, widespread climate change. So I think at the moment, this actually highlights even more so the urgency of tackling climate change rather than less. The challenge we face is that, of course, governments right now are focusing heavily on how to manage and deal with the immediate COVID-19 crisis, and that's where they need to focus. But that does mean pretty much every other issue is lower on the agenda than normal. Um, what we're seeing is that, as we highlighted in the seminar, there are a number of opportunities where you can actually tackle both the COVID-19 crisis, reboot the economy coming out of that, deliver the jobs that we need, help vulnerable households. Um, we can do that and also do it in a way which is good for climate action. So there is a potential to actually accelerate climate action as we're building a new, uh, more robust, uh, more sustainable and equitable economy. There is that potential and what we're going to be doing and many others is helping to highlight where those opportunities are and what governments can do to seize those so we can build back better both for uh, both for people, for the economy, and for the climate. Now, COP26, I mean, uh, as, as many will have seen a couple of days ago, the uh, Bureau and the UK presidency um, announced that they're going to have to delay COP26 uh, from November this year into uh, 2021, haven't set yet a date. I think one of the things we're going to be doing is working with them and supporting others on how can we keep up momentum on climate action over this period to ensure that by the time we get to COP26, we actually are moving further and faster um, uh, in terms of tackling climate risks. So Anjali, the question for you was, how can we restore trust in cities? And I think it was focused on transport, but it goes more broadly to the question of, WRI has been advocating for compact, connected cities. There's a lot to be said for compact. You can walk, you don't need a car, uh, they're more vibrant. Turns out they may also be a better place for spreading, spreading the virus. Are, is there going to be some serious rethinking about the compact nature of cities and how can we so restore trust in transport, public transport? <laughs> One, just on the, on the compactness issue, you know, this is, uh, we've been seeing these debates around density. Uh, I've shown you some pictures around informal settlements and so on. The problem, and, and I really want to emphasize this because our own work and the engagements and partnerships we have with many others who think about this issue show us density is not the problem per se. You break down density into things like overcrowding, floor space occupancy, and so on, and access to services. And you see that density starts becoming a problem when there is overcrowding and there is lack of physical infrastructure and good quality access to services. That's when quality of life starts getting compromised. That's when these kind of outbreaks occur. Hong Kong, Singapore, the cities that are dealing uh, abundantly fine with this, with this crisis are incredibly dense. So, you know, I, we do not uh, want to talk about revisiting why cities exist and what, what uh, is the added sort of uh, value that they bring in terms of density and agglomeration economies and so on. Uh, on public transit, you know, this is, a, this is a very interesting question and a struggle because of the way this crisis has unfolded. It's a respiratory illness. Social distancing norms mean you cannot be packed together in public transit. But we must not forget that public transit is the mode of 
uh, more than the majority of people use around the world, particularly again, lower middle class, low income people to get to their jobs, to get to essential services, education and so on. And so this is not the time to pull back investment in public transit. Yes, we're seeing low ridership and cities will need to struggle. Their public transport agencies will struggle for some time. Uh, however, uh, somebody raised an interesting question about micro mobility options like promoting bicycling and walking infrastructure at this time. This is the need of the R now so that as we build back more resiliently, more low carbonly, uh, in a more low carbon way, sorry, and more equitably, we can use these micro mobility services that we invest in now as feeders to public transit and ramp up ridership. There's a lot of strategies in the playbook. I think, I think this is uh, uh, something uh, we should be focusing on. One other last point on trust. Uh, I, may, I made a point about how cities need to work in partnership with communities, particularly vulnerabilities, and in, identify the ones at risk, invest in them. This is really a way to, to build that trust with communities. Make sure that you're communicating uh, downward in terms of health uh, messages and uh, livelihood opportunities and so on. Make sure that you're working with communities to gather data on their needs and how to respond to them. At the same time, make sure that you're, uh, you're partnering with them to co-create solutions that work best for them. So this is a way many cities have shown us they have built trust with communities. And I think this process needs to, it's begun. Uh, it needs to continue much more after the pandemic. One Jira, over to you. Thanks, Lawrence. Just a very quick example. When I think about this idea of adaptation and building resilience, I'm reminded of this um, concept of, of food security at the family level. We often used to ask people, if you had to stay in and lock down for a week, would you have enough food on your, in your kitchen garden, in your home, in your, um, in your farm, to feed yourself and your family. And the, uh, the whole idea of urban farming and food security at the family level becomes such an important concept now as people are thinking about what they can do when food security is challenged overnight. And so I think that's one really good example I can give about how we can build resilience is to begin to think about food security or security around different issues at the family level. Fang Li, um, up to one minute on trade. In terms of the trade issues, uh, you know, China is the biggest country of more than 120 countries. And also China also relying on the soft commodity, especially the food, uh, agriculture, soft commodity trade. And during the epidemic, we noticed that the, at the beginning, the tree, uh, countries would like to cut down the trade. And, but the, finally, we see the different, the country rely on the trade and to support the country each other. So I really think that the, through the trade and supply chain or value chain, it's linked to the country, to each other. And also country can help to each other and more globalization of the trade is more uh, kind of the stable. But for the some of the essential or uh, essential need products, and we also think about how to make the safety. So that is also, uh, it's kind of the issue to balance the international trade and efficiency and the security. So 
I think that normally speaking, the stable trade and and sustainable trade is healthy for the global economy and also for food supply chain. So that is uh, what I'm understanding. Any law, any, any world tree is a kind of the destroy for nature, nature con conservation. If some country cannot plant the, the soft commodity, the other country is going to cut down the tree, deforestation, then have the soft commodity continually. So treat stable is also kind of a way to protect the nature conservation. Manish, uh, closing remarks. Uh, I know you have thoughts on many of these things. If you can give us one minute and we'll bless and release our audience. Thank you very much. I just wanted to close with just a, a real quick um, reflection. Uh, today, uh, 52 years ago, was the day that Martin Luther King made his very last speech. He was assassinated actually on April 4th. And, and just reminded me of one of, um, you know, perhaps one of the most memorable speeches of the 20th century was when he said, you know, I have a dream. Uh, he didn't say I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. Even at a time when civil rights uh, in the United States were, were so abysmal, were so poor, that even the prose of that despair, he reimagined what a future could look like. And I think we're at a point now, and I, I, I'm still quite, um, quite concerned about just how terrifying this, this, uh, this pandemic is going to be and the human cost that this is gonna have globally. But if, if we can find a way to reimagine how we look at our economy, how we look at society, how we create a new social contract for those that are most vulnerable between different countries, if we can reimagine that, that to me is the opportunity over the next uh, you know, 12, 18 months. And WRI is gonna stay focused on our issues, but we feel that this, this new reality does create an unprecedented opportunity for something truly different. And we, uh, we invite you to join us in, uh, in working together uh, to, help, to help create um, that more inclusive, that more low carbon, that much more resilient and sustainable world. And that last voice was Manish Bapna. This was the first of a series of Building Back Better webinars that WRI will be holding on the impact and the challenges of COVID-19. If you want to find out more, check the events page on WRI.org, plug into our various social media channels, or subscribe to our WRI Digest newsletter. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening and goodbye.